God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming out. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring the service to you, wherever you are. We hope you'll be encouraged today and as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews toward the end of the Bible, right before Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 3 today. That's where we're going to be, and we'll show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easy for you to follow along as well. This is part three of our series, and the final part of three parts of the Messiah mystery. This is for the Jewish people. I'm Jewish, you know. This is for us. I'd like to talk to you today about the greatness of God. It's easy when you face difficulties and trials in life to think that you're up to the task. You'll just make a plan to overcome that trial. That's what you think. Or you'll just beat it by your own strength, your own wisdom, your own resolve. And then when you fail, you think, well, I just need to adjust my plan a little. So you go through about a half a dozen plan changes. And then when nothing seems to work, you start to get a little worried about things. And finally, you run out of options. You just don't see how it's humanly possible to get through that problem you're facing. And that right there is your problem. Your hope is in your own wisdom. It's in your own strength. But you've seen that coming, right? Because your wisdom, your understanding, as we freely admit, is limited. You're only human after all. What'd you expect? This isn't some television show where the main character always wins somehow. No, this is reality. Have you considered bringing your problem to God? It's where you should have started, but here you are at the end of your rope, and you're focused on your own abilities. You should have instead considered the greatness of God. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the greatness of God right now. <clears throat> now, many of you know that I came from a scientific background in solid-state physics and electronic design, system design, designed everything from satellites and space shots to ships and defense works and aircraft equipment and all kinds of things, just amazing things, computers and you name it. And I've seen a lot of things in technology. Well, one of my hobbies, in fact, my main hobby, was that I was an amateur astronomer. In fact, we called it a cosmologist. Now, don't get me confused with a cosmetologist. A cosmetologist is someone who works in a beauty salon fixing up women's hair and their makeup and things like that. <laughs> that wasn't me. I wasn't a cosmetologist. I was a cosmologist thinking about the mysteries of the universe. And when I was a younger man, I had this very large telescope. It was about seven and a half feet tall. It was well over two meters tall. And I had to stand on a chair that you normally put at a kitchen or a dining room table. I had to stand on a chair just to look through the eyepiece. That's how big this telescope was. It was about 160 kilograms or 320 or so pounds or more. And I would put it in the back of my Volkswagen van because I was younger and those were the hippie years and that's what we had was the Volkswagen vans. But anyway, I would take it up to the mountains in Southern California 
and I would go down to the high desert to a little town called Victorville. And I had a friend who lived there, and he would let me stay in his property all night long. So I had a little two-person, what we call a pup tent, a very small tent, just enough for me and a coat to lay down in. And I would stay there, but I wouldn't go to sleep at night. I'd go to sleep at around 6 in the morning. And I'd stay up all night setting up the telescope, looking at the planets, the stars, the galaxies that were up there. I studied this. That's what technical people do. I later went to college for this and everything. I studied the makeup of stars. Now, I'm not talking about the makeup like you put on your face. I'm talking about what they're made of inside. The heavier elements, the heavy metals. No, I'm not talking about music. The heavy metal type elements, the lighter elements like hydrogen and helium and all of these other isotopes and everything that form in the immense pressure in a star. I studied this. I had a big camera that I would put on the telescope and I would take pictures of the stars and the galaxies that night in the complete darkness. And then I'd take them back to the little place where I lived and I had a closet there that I turned into a dark room. And I would develop my own film. You remember film, the stuff that went into cameras? We don't use that anymore, do we? But you had to develop it then to make your pictures to where you could see them. Well, I did all that. And the reason why I did that, because I was a believer then. I was a new believer. But the verse in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, intrigued me. Let's see if I don't have that here. I can read that to you. It says in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, or the skies, shows His handiwork. Day to day pours forth knowledge, speech, and night to night gives knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now what that's saying is, above you at night, someplace you hardly ever look, is the greatest testimony to the greatness of God. It spins over this earth on every point of this earth. The North Pole, the South Pole, the East, the West, Asia, the Western, Europe, and the United States, Hawaii, everywhere it spins over us every night so that we can see the greatness of God. Here's what I'm talking about. Being a scientist, I'm going to take you through what we call the powers of ten. Powers of 10 is just scientific notation, basically. But I just want to tell you just how big that stuff out there is, just to give you an idea. From what we know today, the measurements that we've taken, our Earth that we live on, you know, we call it the Earth, has a circumference, the distance around the circle of the Earth, of about 24,010 miles. 24,010 miles. That's how big around it is. If you were to take a tape measure and lay it at one point and have somebody put their foot on it, then you just walk for a really long time. You come back around to the same place. Eventually, you would have let out 24,010 miles of tape to measure the distance around the earth. That's a big place, isn't it? Sounds like a big place. But did you know that the distance to our moon, which is the closest 
heavenly body that there is to the earth is 10 times that distance. Even at its closest, it's about 247,000 miles. Not 24,000, 247,000 miles at its closest. That's a distance to the moon. But that's just right in our backyard. It turns out that our sun, that big bright thing in the sky every day and gets hotter in the summer, cooler in the winter for us, you know, that, that big sun up there is our star. It's a star. And it's an average size star. It's just a normal size yellow star. But that normal size yellow star, if you could somehow take all of the stuff that's inside of it out and just leave the shell around to where it looks like a, a basketball, but it still has the shape of a ball. And if you could like put in a little hole in the top and fill it full of earths, of earths like we live on, each one of them 24,000 miles around, that sun is so big that it would hold over one million of our earths inside. That's how big it is. You say, well, it doesn't look so big. Well, that's because you're looking at it and it's 93 million miles away. 93 million miles away. And that sun is pretty big, right? And we're just one of the planets that's orbiting around that sun. And that sun is only one of billions and billions of other suns or stars in our local community of stars called a galaxy. And we've named our galaxy the Milky Way. I guess they didn't want to name, they didn't want to name it the Three Musketeers or something, so they named it after another candy bar, the Milky Way. Anyway, if you're watching this from outside America, that might not make sense to you. But if you think that didn't make sense, stick around. I usually say some crazy stuff. But the stuff I'm telling you today, no matter how crazy it may sound, is true. It's out of the science. It's out of the Bible. And it's going to be an amazing lesson, I think. The interesting thing is about our sun is it's only one of about 400 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Scientists have estimated that there's probably between 200 billion to 700 billion stars in the Milky Way, in our galaxy. And they settle on an average of about 400 billion in our galaxy. Now you would think if there's 400 billion stars in our galaxy and that our star, the sun, is a million times bigger than the earth we live on, which is 24,000 miles around, you would think that, wow, that galaxy, the Milky Way, must just be completely filled up. But you would be wrong because 99.9999% of the, of the space in our galaxy, the Milky Way, is still empty. That's because that's how far apart each one of those 400 billion stars are from its nearest neighbor. I'll give you an idea. The speed of light, we call the speed of light C in scientific terms. In meters, it's expressed as 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second. That's how fast light can go. You start a light right now, and within one second, it has gone 3 times 10 to the 8 meters away from where you started it. That number in the English system would be 186,000 miles per second. 
186,000 miles per second. Even when I've had two or three coffees, I can't move near that fast. But anyway, that's the speed of light. The reason why I'm telling you that is because our nearest neighbor, our nearest star to our sun in this community of 400 billion stars is a star called Alpha Centauri. That's the name of the system. And the name of the system there, Alpha Centauri, means that it's the closest to us. And basically, if you were to shine a light toward Alpha Centauri, it would take traveling 886,000 miles a second, traveling that speed, it would take four and a half years of going 186,000 miles every second. It would take four and a half years for that light to reach the nearest star. Now that's pretty fast and that's pretty far. And that's just the closest neighbor that we have. Those other 400 billion stars are even farther. In fact, our galaxy itself, they estimate the diameter to be about 100,000 light years away. 100,000 light years wide. The nearest star, four and a half light years away. If you're going 186,000 miles a second, it would take four and a half years to get to the nearest star. And the galaxy itself is 100,000 light years wide. So in other words, if you're going 186,000 miles every second and you're at one edge of the galaxy and you want to go to the other edge, it would take you 100,000 years to get to there. I don't have that much time. You don't have that much time. It doesn't matter how much organic food you eat. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. It doesn't matter if you run or you exercise. You're not going to make it. And that's just how big our galaxy is. Now listen to this. Our galaxy is only one of many, many other galaxies. 400 billion stars in our galaxy. And scientists tell us today that there's at least as many galaxies in what we know of the universe so far as there are stars in our galaxy. Did you hear that? You understand that? In other words, 400 billion stars in our galaxy, they're saying there's at least that many galaxies, each with about that many stars on average. 400 billion times 400 billion. Think about that. That's a big number. Now's the time when we switch to scientific notation. We say that a thousand is 10 to the third. That means it's a one followed by three zeros. 10 to the one, two, the third. One, two, three. 10 to the third is a thousand. 10 to the sixth is a million because it's a one followed by six zeros. A billion is a thousand millions. And that's a one followed by nine zeros. But our government routinely spends billions of dollars. Billions of cities spend billions of dollars, especially the democratic cities. No, just kidding. Only partly. Our government, the U.S. government, where I am right now in the United States, spends over $1 trillion a year. A year. What's a trillion? We said that a billion is a thousand millions and a trillion is a thousand billions. And that's how much money our government spends every year 
in dollars. In fact, it's even more than that. About one and a half trillion, I believe it is. But who's counting? We print our own money. Just kidding. Well, not kidding. We really do print our own money, but it seems like somebody's not taking it so seriously, doesn't it? But anyway, that's a big number. A billion. A one with nine zeros after it. A trillion. A one with twelve zeros after it. Okay? So think of 400 billion, a 400 with nine zeros after it. That's how many stars are in our galaxy. And then think of that many galaxies, each with on average about that many stars. So you're saying that there's 400 billion times 400 billion stars in just what we know of the universe right now. And that means 400 billion galaxies, each with about 400 billion stars, 400 billion times 400 billion, what you do is you multiply the 400 times the 400. Then you set that aside over here and you take those nine zeros because we're talking about billions on each number. And you take the nine zeros from the number of galaxies. You take the nine zeros from the number of stars in a galaxy. And you put those together. Now instead of nine and nine, you have 18 zeros. So 400 times 400, whatever that number is, then add 18 zeros after that. That's how many stars are estimated to be in only what we know of the universe right now. With our limited visibility, our limited technology, oh, I know you think it's so, it's so good. And I did too, and I worked in it for 30-something years as a physicist and a design engineer. I worked in these things. I worked in the billions and the trillions and things and one trillionth of a second, one billionth of a second, electronic systems and all like that and light traveling at 186,000 miles a second on light tables and light-based photo optics and things like that. And yet, we know so little about the universe. In fact, in this universe, the things that we can see with the unaided eye and with even our telescopes, our optical telescopes, are only about 10% of what scientists estimate to be in the universe. 10%. They say that up to 90% of the universe we can't even see because it may be of a substance called dark matter. We haven't even confirmed it yet. We haven't even observed it. Think about that. How are you going to observe dark matter? And yet because of the gravitational influence on other galaxies and stars and things that we see, we have surmised that there's got to be a lot more there. And because of the degree of, uh, of gravitational pull from certain bodies in space to other areas of space, we have surmised, we've calculated that what we don't know is about 90% of what's there. We only know about 10% of what's there. So if you've thought that we're the people with the answers and the scientists have all the answers, you better think again. We're not there yet. It seems like the more that we uncover, the more questions it uncovers as well. This is the greatness of God. Now, we talked about how our galaxy was 100,000 light years in diameter across it. That's pretty, that's pretty big, 100,000 light years, light traveling 186,000 miles a second would take 100,000 years to get across the galaxy. But that's just our galaxy. Our closest neighbor galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy. Some of you may know that term. It's the closest one. You can actually see it 
with the naked eye in a very, very dark sky without the moon in it that night. If you know where to look, you can see just a faint little tiny cloud up there. That galaxy, the closest one to us, is around 2.5 million light years away. 2.5 million light years, and that's just the closest one. Light going 186,000 miles a second, or if you want to put it in the metric system, 3 times 10 to the 8 meters per second, it would take 2.5 million years to start shining from here and end up arriving at the Andromeda galaxy, our nearest neighbor. And yet, again, scientists tell us that there's as many galaxies in the known universe as there are stars in our galaxy. In other words, over 400 billion. The nearest star to us, that Alpha Centauri, four and a half light years away, means that 99.99999% of all of space is empty. You think 400 billion stars would fill up a galaxy, but it's really just virtually empty. And yet they're still there. That's how big creation is. And that's just what we can see today. What I'm saying is this describes, Psalm 19 verse 1 through 4, said the heavens above us describe the greatness of God. What you see of the universe, and we won't even go there to talk about the atoms and all these things that are so super, super tiny, you need an electron microscope to see them. But let me just put it to you this way. You don't hear much about this, but this is true science. You are unique. Man was created in the image of God. That means he has the capacity to think about the same things that God thinks about. He has the ability to have the same values that God values in his heart. Man is far, far different than any other creature on earth. Monkeys do not design space shots to send tens of millions of miles away where computers take photographs and drill into the soil of Mars and other planets and things like that for samples and then photo analyze it through spectrum analysis and then send those results back over a comm channel to Earth over telemetry channel for high resolution telemetry where it can be analyzed over months and years and then determinations could be made about what elements exist on that far, far away place. Monkeys can't do that. Other animals can't design medical medicines that go into the human body and work with a human cell that is so small you could put tens of thousands on them on the point of a pen. You know how small that little universe is? Take a pencil. You remember a pencil before we got our cell phones. You remember what they look like, right? You used to sharpen them and then you'd rub them on paper a certain way and you would write, you know, with them and they were real sharp pencil was just real cool. But that tiny little point, as sharp as you can get that pencil, if you take that pencil, you set that point down very softly on a piece of paper and you make a point on that piece of paper that is almost too small to even see. Scientists tell us that the little atom, that there would be one in ten to, there would be ten to the thirteenth atoms in that tiny pencil point. 
That's a one followed by 13 zeros. That's how many atoms would fit inside that little pencil dot. That's how small they are. And yet they each have their own little moons called electrons that orbit around them. Amazing what God has done, both inside with the very small, outside with the very large and the very far away. Animals can't make medicines to heal diseases. Animals don't make microscopes to see atoms. Animals don't design spacecraft. Animals don't use cameras and multimedia to come to you and broadcast their services like we do here at the Shepherd's Light and like other places do on this invention you have called television. They don't know how to make radio that uses invisible waves to go through the air to transmit the music that you like to hear, the shows that you like to listen to. We're alone. Man alone has the wisdom to do that. Other creatures can't make a 787 Boeing aircraft that flies across the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. They can't make drills that drill down miles into the Earth's crust and drill for oil and other things like that. Oh, don't fall for that evolution thing. You are unique, created in the image of God, and you have a high and noble purpose in this life. And God wants to show you who He is. When you look up, instead of looking down, looking down at that old cell phone all the time, makes it to where we don't have much time to look up. Maybe you should look up more often and see the greatness of God. Because when you do, you'll understand two things. You'll understand that in this book, there are the answers to life. And there's two things right here that you need to know. First of all, like we said, God is all-powerful. And all things are held together by the word of His might. Tiny little electrons spinning around the atom. Scientists tell us that they're spinning so fast they shouldn't be able to keep that tiny little tight orbit, and yet they do. God's holding it all together. If He were to remove His hand, it would all fly apart. Everything in the universe would disintegrate. The second thing you need to know is in addition to Him being all-powerful, He loves you. He became a man to die for your sins, that you might be with Him like you were designed to be. You were created to have everlasting life. When you know these two things, that He's all-powerful and how much He loves you, and He proved that on the cross of Calvary, shouldn't you just get that problem, all those problems, life itself, shouldn't you just give it all over to Him? That's what Hebrews chapter 3 is talking about, trusting in Him to take care of those trials you face to battle those giants you're facing so you can rest in His care for you. That's what it means in this chapter when it says entering into God's rest. Now just a little reminder of how we got to this place in this series. Hebrews chapter 1 basically said God sent His Son to speak to man and to give him the good news of salvation through Him. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and because of our sins, we can't stand in the presence of a holy and purely righteous God. But He doesn't want to destroy us or judge us for our sins. He made us in His image to be children to Him. But sin corrupted us. And so He said, I will go, and I will give my life as a Kippur, 
as an atonement for the sins of mankind, that whoever believes in me, the Messiah that he sent, Yeshua HaMashiach, God became a man to give his life for us, whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. That was the message of Hebrews chapter 1, the first in our three-point series on the Messiah mystery. Hebrews chapter 2 was our second message. And that basically said to us, to the Jewish people, remember it's called Hebrews because it's written to the Jewish people. That, that chapter in chapter 2 said, that Messiah that you've been expecting, it's God Himself. It's not just a regular man. A regular man couldn't do what he did because every regular man has sin in his life. And just like the Pesach rules had said in Hasefer Shemot Shtimisrei, chapter 12 of the book of Exodus, when it described how to observe Passover, just like the Passover rule said, it says it's got to be the blood of a blemish-free sacrifice lamb. Blemish-free, spotless. You can't have a man who had sin in his life be an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He's trading his sinlessness for our sins so that he could take our place and be punished for our sins. That's what the Messiah did. He took our place. He experienced death for all of us that we would have everlasting life in heaven with God. He became a man and He redeemed man through the cross. The Messiah wasn't just some man. No, He was much more than that. Oh, He was a man, but He wasn't a man who decided one day that He wanted to be God. No, God knew that we needed someone to die for our sins. And so he became the sacrifice for our sins. Interesting thing is, he could have sent an angel and said, go down there and die for those people. Sacrifice your life. You haven't sinned. You haven't given, you know, there's no sin in your life. But he had to send one of us. He had to become born into the body of a little infant. Grow. Always keep the Torah. Sheshmot Shaloshis Re Mitzvot, the 613 commands, so that he would qualify, so that he would qualify to die for us. And he did that. Faithfully all his life he kept those rules. And then what came right down to it, he said, I'm going to go through with it. I'm going to let them take my life. And he said, Remember, no one took his life from him. It wasn't the Jewish people, it wasn't my people, it wasn't the Gentiles, it wasn't even the Romans. He says, I lay my life down of my own. And my father has told me to do this and he's given this to me and he knows that I can take it up again. He's one with God. The three in one. There's not three gods. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. He is one. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we believe that too. But God exist far, far above anything that we can relate to. He's not like us. Why do, you try, why do you try to make God look like you? Why do you try to paint Him in your image? You were made in His image. That means the inside, the Spirit, says in the Bible, He's not flesh and blood. He's not bones. He's eternal Spirit. He put eternal Spirit in you. Can He exist much higher than you exist? Remember what he said in the book of Yeshayah Navi, Isaiah the prophet. He said, My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts. But as the heavens are above the earth, 
so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. So can't his existence be higher than we can imagine too? Infinitely higher? Can he be three and somehow still one? Yes, he can. And he is. Because the Bible, Old and New Testament, has verses for that that prove it. And the Word of God is true. It says in the Word, Let every man be a liar, but God be true. And every time people think they've found something in the Bible that proves that it's wrong, within a short time or a few years later, they find the way that it was true, and it turns out they were wrong. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3 right now. In the first part of this chapter, he's saying, you're not saved by working your way into heaven. It's not by works. If it were by works, God would owe you something, right? A paycheck. But it's not by works. You're being saved by believing in and trusting in the Son of God. But then on down in Hebrews chapter 3, it starts talking to us about how important it is for God to know that you rely on Him, that you trust in Him. Let's read it. Starting at verse 1 in Hebrews 3, it says, Therefore, brethren, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, Mashiach Yeshua, who was faithful to Him who appointed Him. God the Father sent Him. And he was faithful to God as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moshe, Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Moses is one of the believers. He's the house that God is building, but God is the one who builds the house and whose house it is. He continues in verse 4, For every house is built by someone. But he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant, it says in verse 5, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope until the end, firm to the end. Verse 7, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, and now he's quoting from the Tanakh. He says, Today, if you will hear His voice, God's voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. What rebellion are you talking about there, Pastor Stephen? I'm talking about the rebellion when God commanded the people, Am Israel, they were in the wilderness, Moshe was leading them, and they made it all the way up to and the land of the promised land, Israel, which was Canaan at that time. And then they sent the spies into the land. The spies came back. Two of them came back with a good report. And that was Joshua and Caleb. And they said, God will give it to us. But the other spies that came back with them, they said, no, there's giants there. And we looked as tiny as grasshoppers compared to those giants. And the cities are fortified. They've got these big, tall walls around their cities. And if you think about it, all the cities back then had walls around there to keep invading armies out. But if they built big walls for regular-sized people, how big do you think those walls would be if the giants built those walls? Trying to keep other giants out of there, too. And so to a regular man, they would just look up at that wall and they go, there's no way we could break down that wall. 
There's no way that we can conquer those giants. And they became afraid. And they said, God, we're not going in. We're not going in. God said, you go in, take that land. I'm going to give you the victory. They said, no, no. They did not trust God. They did not believe God that he would care for them. They did not rely on God. Now, here's the thing. You know, in Hebrew, we have a word for believe. Leha amin. Leha amin. That's where we get our word amin from. Because it's part of the shorish or the root of leha amin. Okay? Amin means you're relying on God. It means you're believing on God to do something. That's why we say it at the end of our prayers. Leha amin. But it also, in Hebrew, in addition to believing, equally it means that you're relying on God. That you're trusting God. That He's your only hope. That He's the one that you're trusting to bring this to pass. To do this. And so he says in verse 7, as he's quoting from the Tanakh, this is what God had said to Israel. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, when they said no to God. And God says, where your fathers tested me, they tried me. Now think about this. Why did they try him? You see, here's the thing. They had seen part of the greatness of God. They had seen God defeat the Egyptian army, which was probably the most powerful army in the world at that time with their F-16-like chariots and things like that. He took advanced military. Israel wasn't uh, warriors. They had been slaves. They were beaten down. They were weak. They were kept next to starving and hungry. They were unhealthy. They really didn't have any experience. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't have any tools. But God defeated the world's most advanced army and destroyed Pharaoh and his chariots. Remember? We know about this from the Pesach story from Passover. But then that's not all. God also provided food for Israel every day for 40 years. Every day. And he provided it in a very miraculous way. They were used to getting food from the ground. You plant something, later you, you know, harvest it, you got some food from it. Okay, or maybe they got it from the water, you know, and they fished and they had fish come up and this was part of the food that they had and everything. But look at what God did, something totally unexpected. Remember, he does things that we can't imagine. Remember, he exists in ways that we can't comprehend. In the same way, he gave them food from the skies, from heaven. It says he gave them food that angels ate, manna, manna. He gave it to them and fed them and kept them alive for 40 years. Well, that was a miracle. Defeating Pharaoh's army, that was a great miracle. But they also needed something to drink, Pastor Stephen, out there in the wilderness. They couldn't just have enough just from something to eat and taking care of those armies. There was about 1.2 to 1.5 million Hebrew people there at that time. That's what we estimate today. That's what scholars estimate. Where are you going to get water from them? There's no water there. Well, human wisdom would have said, okay, we're going to send out some scouts. We'll send two of you this way, two this way, two back here, and two go that way. And you let us know if you see any streams or anything like that, or if there's mountains that have a little snow at the top, then maybe we could like get some of that water that's melting down and trickling down off that mountain. 
That's not what happened. God took the most unlikely thing. He didn't do it by man's wisdom, you see. He took the most unlikely thing. He says, you see that rock over there? I'm going to make water come out of that rock. Water come out of a rock? God, I, I know about rocks, and there's no water in rocks, <laughs> you know. But he had Moses hit the rock with the staff, and water came out of the rock. And I'm not talking about a little. I'm talking about enough water to give plenty of water all day long, all week long, ever how long they stayed there, to give plenty of water to 1.2 to 1.5 million people. Those are mighty miracles. What they were seeing was the greatness of God. He would protect them. It says their soles of their shoes didn't wear out. He healed their diseases. God had been faithful. He had never let them down, but they feared. They were looking only at their own strength, at their own wisdom, and they failed to see and to consider the greatness of God. Don't you make that mistake. Verse 10 in chapter 3 continues. It says, therefore, God speaking, therefore I was angry with that generation. Why? Because they didn't believe Him. They didn't trust in Him. They were trusting in their own capabilities. They were trusting in their own thinking, in their own wisdom. They were trusting in their own works. You see where I'm going with this? Your own works are not the ways of God. God has different ways far beyond your understanding. He said, I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. I'm Israel in the wilderness. They had heard the voice of the Lord at Sinai. They had seen the miracles that God did bringing them through the Red Sea, but they had not known his ways because the, the way of God was to trust him and let him care for you in life. But they insisted on leaning on their own strength, on their own understanding. Now these are quotes from the Tanakh, or in English you'd call that the Old Testament. You see, God's way, the relationship you must have with him, God is saying that that relationship is to be based on trusting him to care for you. It's not based on works you do. Oh, my Jewish brothers and sisters, being in Israel all those 12 years, you know and I know you see them on the street corners, wrapping the flynn, you know, asking if you've done righteous things today, if you've done this or that. That's all based on works. God is telling you right here as the Tanakh is being quoted, you have not known the ways of God because the ways of God are not the ways of man. I know the ways of man. They teach you. You do this, you get that. You do this, you get that. You clean your plate, you can have dessert. You come in on schedule, we'll give you a bonus at your work. But that's not the ways of God. God's ways are, I know you've sinned. I know you've done a lot of wrong stuff. I know you've really messed up. But if you rely on me, if you believe on me and my forgiveness for your sins and my Messiah, I'm going to wipe that all away and you're going to look as perfectly righteous and clean as you can be before the throne of God because I'm going to become your Savior. That's the way of God. Not trying to show God how righteous you are. Why don't you spend your time praising Him for how righteous He is? That's the way of God. 
considering the greatness of God. It's not based on your work. So verse 11, he says, So I swore in my wrath, they'll not enter my rest. What was he talking about? Well, this is out of the Tanakh. He was speaking to Am Israel out in the wilderness. He was saying, they're not going to enter my rest. We're talking about the promised land. You see, they were going to be going into the promised land where God would care for them. God would feed them. God would protect them. God would keep them. But they were afraid because they wanted to be strong enough to beat those giants. They wanted to be wise enough to go into that land and have overwhelming military superiority so that they would, didn't have anything to worry about. But God was saying, no, that's not how you do what I want you to do. The way of God is to believe on me and let me have your battles and I will fight those battles for you. I'll beat those giants for you. I'll drive them out. I'll keep you well. I'll keep you healthy. I'll provide that food. I'll provide that water. You're going to be in real good shape if you just trust me. And the people said, no, no. And they did not believe in God's salvation. That's what I'm saying. Let me say that again. They did not believe in God's salvation. So God said, you're not going to enter my promised land. It'll be your children instead. So it says in verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, from His ways. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What do you mean the deceitfulness of sin? The deceitfulness of sin says, Oh, you have to earn your way into heaven by works. God is saying, that's not the way of God. Abraham, in Genesis 15, verse 6, God said, And Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. Believing God. That is the way that God wants you to be righteous. By believing on the salvation that He's provided in His Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. All who believe on Him will be saved. So as we wrap up verse 14 in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, it says, For we have become partakers of Christ, if we, behold, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts like they did then in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Who was it? It was Israel. It was the Jewish people. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moshe? Yes. Only Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter. Now with whom was he angry those 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? In verse 18, as it closes out, to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they couldn't enter in because of unbelief. So God didn't let them into the promised land because they didn't trust in His protection, in His care. They were only trusting in themselves. So God let them perish in the wilderness. And He only let the generation after them come into the promised land. Now what we're talking about here today is the promise of heaven and having everlasting life. That's His promise today. But it's also the promise of God's care and protection and provision now in this life as well. 
That's the rest that God wants you to have, where you can rest from all your constant worries and attempt to do everything just right, to remember to do everything. You can rest from all of this, trying to be righteous and failing all the time. You can rest from this by trusting in God's salvation instead of your own futile efforts. My brother, my sister, my Jewish people, whom I love and care for, I am one of you. I long for you to see this freedom. I long for you to see and feel his love and his care for you every day in every part of your life. Yes, I know your family say they will disown you if you believe on Yeshua. But you know what? The prophets were persecuted in the same way in the Tanakh. They had few friends. The kings and the majority of the people turned on the prophets and most of the prophets were killed and persecuted. And now, in these last days, God has sent His very Son. And if the voice of the prophets not being heeded was met with judgment, think of how much greater the voice of God's only begotten Son not being heeded will become in judgment for those who did not pay attention to Him. Don't perish. Come to Him. Come to Him. And who knows? God may use you as the one to turn all your family from a life of works that are not the ways of God to a life of faith in the Messiah in which God is well pleased with you and gives you the peace and the love I'm talking about. Your attempts are always going to fall short. But God's salvation and His plan for your life is perfect. And He will see you through safely and safely into His kingdom. And you'll have a deep peace in your life. Only by relying on Him can heaven and everlasting life be yours. Don't miss this salvation. Don't refuse His free gift of forgiveness and His salvation and His Mashiach Yeshua, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Lord Himself came to take your sins on Himself so that you could be together in heaven with Him forever like you were designed to. There is no other way to be saved. Don't miss the salvation that's being offered to you today. Now if you've already given your life to Him in faith, this chapter is saying that remember how you came to Him in faith, believing on Him to save you? Well, that's how He wants you to live each and every day. Faith in Him instead of your own works, your own efforts. It's all in His love. It all comes down to realizing His power and knowing His love for you. When you firmly grasp those two things, you're entering into His rest. In closing, I just want to tell you a little story, you know. Sometimes we read something in the Bible and though it's clear and it's straightforward and it's right there in front of us, somehow we just don't understand what's being said. You can look at some things and write, just look at them and still not see what it's about. You can hear something being said and still not get it. I heard the story about a man the other day that came home from work and he had been having problems with his 15-year-old boy. Imagine that. Problems with a 15-year-old boy? He came home and he was pretty upset. When the boy came into the room to speak to his dad, his father told him, he says, son, sit down, I want, some, I want to tell you something that's really important. 
The boy just rolled his eyes, put his hands in his pocket, looked like he was really inconvenienced to be there. Then the father got a serious look on his face and said, looking the boy right in the eye, he says, Son, I have something to tell you. You were adopted. And the son said, What? I knew it. I want to meet my real biological parents. And the father just kind of rolled his eyes and said, Son, your mother and I are your biological parents. Now pack up your things because your new adopted parents will be here in 20 minutes to pick you up. But seriously, God is telling us right here how important it is to listen to Him in our lives, trusting in Him instead of ourselves. God is big enough to handle the problems you're facing today. Is He big enough to handle your trials? We just talked about that. The universe, remember? Oh, He's big enough. He can take care of any problem you're facing. And that's what I'm saying. You give that situation over to God. It's that simple faith in Him that He desires. And you watch what He'll do. When you remember the greatness of God, when you consider the greatness of God, when you allow yourself to be in awe of the greatness of God, then once again you will see the greatness of God in your life. He won't let you down. Why don't you give your life to Him today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry and He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness. He'll shine His light on your heart. And He'll give you newness of life, completely new. He'll change you into a new person, throw all that sin and baggage and guilt away. You'll be completely new. And He'll give you everlasting life in His kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's God's promise to those who believe on His Mashiach, Yeshua. Then your thoughts about forever and everlasting life will have peace and joy to go along with them because God will dwell with you in your heart. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive me of all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. A seed's been planted in your heart. Over time, you'll begin to see the wonderful changes He's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church, learn about Him and His Word, Talk to God in prayer every day. He's doing amazing things in your life starting today. <laughs>